Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 183rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Hannah Moore. Hannah is the founder of Guiding Wealth, an independent RA in Dallas, Texas area that oversees nearly 25 million of assets under management for 25 affluent clients. What's unique about Hannah, though, is the way she's deliberately crafted her advisory firm to support her personal goals, from giving back to the profession through her involvement with the FPA, to building her everyday money consumer brand, and the unique attitude that Hannah brings to her decisions about where and how she focuses her time to achieve her goals. In this episode, we talk in depth about Hannah's philosophy and how she manages her time and focuses her efforts, the way she limits her working time regardless of the length of her to-do list and uses what remains undone as a way to reevaluate her own priorities and what she's delegating, how Hannah hired a virtual integrator to help her manage the implementational aspects of the business so she can focus on the visionary work that she does best, and the systems that Hannah uses to manage tasks and workflow to ensure that her vision is implemented appropriately. We also talk about Hannah's advisory firm itself, the way she started out by buying into an experienced broker's book of business, how she transitioned from serving nearly 300 clients to going independent with fewer than 30 of them and still managed to keep her income even with about 90% less work, and the budgeting blocks tool that she's created for her clients to have more meaningful financial planning experiences with them. And be certain to listen to the end, where Hannah shares the mindset shift that helped her separate the visionary work she loves from the management she doesn't enjoy as much, the way Hannah structures her week to be productive and stay focused, and why the number one piece of advice to financial advisors, and especially those in the early years of their career, is to joining and getting involved with a membership association like the FPA. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Hannah Moore. Welcome, Hannah Moore, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the the podcast today and the discussion. And just what to me is this, I don't know, this interesting balance that you seem to have found between what you do in your advisory firm and you know, working with clients, getting paid, or I think we got to do the stuff for for serving clients and and your involvement in giving back to the profession as well. I know you're incredibly involved with FPA, you know, run the FPA Activate community, do the You're a Financial Planner Now What podcast, you're driving the recent FPA externship program. And yeah, just in a world where most of us try to figure out this work-life balance thing, you're doing all this stuff in the advisory firm and all this stuff in FPA and still have to deal with family life and the rest as well. I think is a mystery for most of us of how do you juggle that many balls at once. And so I'm just looking forward to a discussion. Like, how do you, how do you find this balance of family life, work life, profession, giving back and trying to keep it all together? Oh my gosh. Well, there's a lot to it. Well, first of all, I'll say FPA, it's not a pure volunteer position. They are paying me. So that that helps things with some of the balance. And I think with anybody who is in a position where they're doing a lot, I'm not the only person. So we have, you know, we've been able to build out teams around me to really help and support. 
so there's that side of it. The other side of it is I've really embraced like, how do I be creative around my work? And that's really helped me. So I have this perspective of constraint inspires creativity. Constraint inspires creativity. Yes. So the founder of Twitter actually came up with that when they started Twitter because everybody said it's impossible. It is impossible for you to communicate your message in 160 characters. And that was his response to it. And I, and I loved it. And I thought it was brilliant. And I think it can apply to absolutely everything that we do. And so, you know, I often have a long to-do list, like I'm sure most of us do, and things fall off of it, right? And I think that's really, really healthy. So it's really healthy for me to go through a day and say, this, these are all the things that I wanted to do. What didn't get done? Okay. So then that gives me the opportunity to reassess and say, okay, so why didn't that get done? So it's clearly not a priority. So I can't use that excuse. Am I not delegating enough? Am I not outsourcing? What can I do? Or is it something that I should get rid of? So I think, you know, we always talk about we're balancing all of these things. It's really healthy when some things fall. Because that helps me understand what's my capacity. And then I have a decision to make. Like, is this something that I can get help with? Or is this something that I shouldn't be doing? Or did I do something that I shouldn't have been doing? So for me, I mean, it's almost on a daily or weekly basis that I'm looking at this. And it's really challenging myself. And it's really a self-reflective exercise because some of this stuff I really, really want to do. But maybe that's not the best use of my time, or maybe I can get help in doing something else. So that's just kind of my philosophy towards life. And, and, you know, you alluded to a family life. I have a little 21 month old little girl. And so at five o'clock, I try my best and and, I'm mostly really good at this. Like I'm done. You know, sometimes, you know, right now we're in a really busy time with FPA with this externship, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, you know, I'll sometimes go back after she goes to bed, but I'm like, those are really precious hours that I'm not willing to sacrifice. And so I am not the grinded out. I'm more, how does the constraints of my life that I put in there, how does that change how I work and how I approach my work? And that has been transformational for me. I love that framing that having been active on Twitter, I certainly get and have literally lived the like constraint inspires creativity and all the ways you try to figure out how to pack your message in when you get a very limited number of, of characters on Twitter. But I mean, it sort of reminds me of, I guess, the corollary saying that necessity is the mother of invention, right? Like, you get awfully creative to figure out how to do something when you literally have no choice but to figure out how to do it. Well, what's great here, Michael, is that I don't need to do this, right? Like, I don't need to work with the FPA, but I want to. It gives me so much energy and so much life. Like, I am, I don't have to do any of the things that I'm doing. And that's what's so, it's just whole flipping the narrative of these are things that I want to do. This, these are things that I have the privilege of doing. Like, oh my God, how privileged am I to run my own practice and to be volunteering and helping my profession in the FPA? Like, I don't, like, can it get better than this? But there's still this just, packing it all in that I think a lot of us struggle with and you you seem to get there or get to the point that that stuff is getting done. I'm struck by just the way you frame like I've got a to-do list and whenever I look at my to-do list of things that didn't happen and and fell off. Well first of all I think it's really interesting just to sort of say and own I guess it wasn't really a priority. Yeah. Right because if it really was a priority you would have done that before the other things that were that were on your list. So either either it really wasn't a priority or it really, really was, and you have to acknowledge something else you did on your list that was 
really not a priority and figure out how you're going to flip that around. I'm not willing to shame myself into action, right? Like I've, I've played that game. Like that's not fun. I'm not willing to say, well, I should be doing this. I have to do this. I Like I know that when I get in that space, you're not going to get the best of me. And I know that to be, to be on my A game, to do all of these big, huge things that I want to do, that I I have to be on my A game. And by me sitting here and just being like, oh, I feel so guilty. I didn't get back to this client. I feel so guilty. I mean, I didn't get to do all, I didn't do all of these things. That doesn't help me. So it's it's the reframing of it that I think is one of the most powerful things that I've done. So it's it's looking at what script do I have to change? Because if I can do that, then it just, I have so much joy going into the work that I do. Like I, I, I hear a lot of productivity specials. I hear a lot of like what the advice that we get in financial services. And it's always felt a little off to me because it's all about how can I cram more into my to-do list versus everything on my list can really bring me joy and bring me energy. And if it can do that, then I'm going to be so much more productive. And just, and the corollary that goes with that of then therefore, what am I not going to do? Either it's not a priority or I'm handing it off to someone else or I'm delegating it or just doing doing something else so it's literally not not my problem anymore. Yeah. And you know, one of the things is I've I've really come to realize that, you know, what's limiting my growth is usually me. <laughs> like what's limiting my business growth is usually me. Like I'm in the way. <laughs> like we hired a brilliant guy to come work with us in our practice. And when I'm trying to be in the way or I'm trying to like be needed <laughs> or I think that this can't be done without me, like that's hurting his growth. That's not empowering him. That's going to, that's going to limit what my company is able to do because of my ego. And I'm, that just doesn't make sense to me anymore. That certainly resonates with me as well. Having gone through a similar growth path of, of trying to, trying to grow a business beyond me that, that just, there's a, there's a stage early on where you want to touch everything and be involved in everything or well, initially you are the only person so you literally do everything. But you know, I I've taken it to, to acknowledging and outright saying like, I am virtually always the primary bottleneck in the business. Like literally me personally, because the more things I require to route through me to give feedback or approval or whatever it is, the entire business and everything downstream is limited by the number of hours that I have in the day to look at stuff or give feedback or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so the more that I, you know, the more that I require that keeping that level of control or that involvement, the more limited the business becomes. Like eventually you will top out at the number of things in the aggregate downstream that you are still able to look at and give your approval on. Yeah. And if you can't move past that, then whenever you hit that natural limit, the the business you stop growing the business stops growing and 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 starts to flatline which i guess if you're at the point you want to be at that's fine but if you want to grow further that that becomes a problem and and you know you become the limiting factor in your own business growth so one of the other things that happened so i i tried to look outside of financial planning. I, I learn a lot um, outside of, of our world here and because there's some just crazy innovative things happening out there. And so I joined this mastermind. It was for creative female entrepreneurs online. Most all of them have online business. And like, I am the, <laughs> there is nobody within a mile of, of financial planning in that group, which, which I love it. That's it's perfect. 
but one of the things, so the lady who was leading the mastermind group, I was, I was talking to her and, and I'm really high, you know, I, I can get a lot of work done in a short amount of time. And I was talking to her about it and I was like, you know, I'm really good at getting 80 to 90% of things done. And, and, and I was like, but it's that last 10% that just like, it's the posting the blog. It's the, it's all these other elements. And so she, she stopped me. She's like, oh, well, that's easy to fix. You just need an integrator. You're the visionary. You just need an integrator. And I was like, well, yeah, I know I do, but what, where do I go? And she's like, oh, I got somebody you need to talk to. So I work with a woman who she bills herself as she is an integrator for online female visionaries. And so she has a handful of different clients. So she runs my entire project management system. So she runs all of that. So she's always working on my business, never in my business. So now whenever I say like, I'll Voxer, have you heard of Voxer? Voxer? Voxer. Yeah. It's an app. I know. Right. Me either. I thought it was crazy. It's a walkie talkie app. And so I, whenever I have my huge, big ideas, I voxer everything to her. And so I'll just be like, Hey, so I have this idea of this new business model. Like I've really done this. And then I'll just like talk through it all. It's like, here's what I'm envisioning. And then we would do this and then we would do that. And then we would do this and then we would do that. Like, I just get the whole idea out because what I realized is as a visionary, ideas bounce around in my head a lot. And if I can't get them out in a good way, they just, they take up the space that, that it doesn't need to be taking up. And so she documents all of it. And so we put it in our future idea list or I'll say, you know, I mean, this externship program is a great example. I'll be like, okay, so we're going to do this externship program and here's, I'll just talk it all out. I'll be like, here's what I'm going to do from a programmatic standpoint. Here's what I need from the marketing. Here's what we need to do for this. Here's what we need to coordinate. And I'll just talk it all out with her. Um, and we'll go back and forth and she'll ask me some different questions and then she'll populate it all into my project management system. And so at that point, we're just delegating out tasks, pulling in what's most important for me. And the, the process is built out already. So it's been a really, really powerful of how I can leverage somebody like that to help me get more done in my practice. I brought her on about a year and a half ago, and I think my productivity of what I can actually get done probably increased three to four times with just just that one hire. So out of curiosity, like, can I ask, who, who is this and is she taking <laughs> on other business owners? Apparently, I don't qualify because I'm not an online female entrepreneur, but I, some right? other people who are listening may be interested. No, she's amazing. I know right now her queue is like full, like she has all of her integrator clients where she's acting as the integrator. I do know that she is building out online programs to actually teach hyperproductive virtual assistants how to become these online integrators or integrators for you know people in these online businesses right now. So if somebody's interested, I can definitely like refer them. Is, is there a business name or a site we can send people to and we'll make sure we put it in the in the show notes for anyone who's listening? Her name is Kristen Kaplan. I'll I'll give you the link for the show notes. Okay. Fantastic. To her program. So for for folks who are listening, this is episode. 183. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 183, we'll have a link out for your path to an online virtual integrator and possibly one that is works more broadly than online female entrepreneurs in case you're listening and you don't qualify for that, but you want one of these as well. What's so interesting about her is she has a very niche group that she works with. So I don't know if you follow, not to get too crazy, but like she has the Enneagram, the Enneagram. So like I'm a seven and she's like, all of my clients are Enneagram sevens. And, but it's really cool because she knows, because my ideas can be very overwhelming for people. That's one thing that I've learned, but she knows how to work with me because she knows 
all of her clients are like that. And so it's really given me the freedom where I'm not ever worried about overwhelming her. She's just like, no, that's what you do. That's the value that I bring to this. And so it's really helped me to embrace that instead of just being like, oh my gosh, I don't want to, I can't give too many ideas like this. I mean, cause I can, it can be overwhelming sometimes. I can be overwhelming. And just for people who aren't familiar with Enneagrams, like what's, what's an Enneagram seven? Oh boy. I'm probably not the best expert at that. So it's like different personality types. So mine is much more, I'm a very big idea person. I get energy from jumping between project to project. So usually that drains most people. It actually gives me a lot of energy. So really high creative. I tend to let balls drop sometimes. That's one of the downsides of it. So it's just much more of like an in-depth personality assessment. Okay. So you went down this road of got to get more efficient focus, joined a mastermind group, mastermind group steered you to Kristen and working with an integrator to say like, look, if you're good at vision stuff, like do the vision stuff, let someone else integrate it and, and, and put it into practice. Yeah. And then you said you're coordinating with a project management system as well. I just, Asana. Curious, like, what are you using? Asana? Yeah. Okay. So you, you don't do that from your CRM system. We don't. That's something that we're going to be fixing very soon. Okay. So yeah, we, we've kind of been walking that. Asana has felt like a stopgap for my practice. So we're doing that on just broad processes and some client meetings, but we're sensitive not to put like client information in there and things like that. So okay. we're, we're in a stopgap spot right now with that. But, but now that now having seen that, like now I'm like, I can't imagine living without processes, even though they're not my strong suit. So like Matt, who is employee, like he'll listen to this and be like, oh boy. They're not my strong suit, but I I know how important they are. And so, you know, it's a it's a high priority now that we're going to be able to use that much more effectively in our practice going forward. Interesting. And so I do want to come back once more to just understand this. I'm still fascinated by this to-do list mentality that for so many of us, like you look at a to-do list where everything got didn't get done and it, you know, it doesn't feel good. It's like all, all the boxes don't have check marks. And just you have this, I think, as you put, like opposite script of, yeah. oh, I didn't get the things, all the things on my to-do list. I guess by definition, that means I need to not be doing all these things. So let's figure out what we're, what we're changing. Like, what do you just help me? I guess run through your head, your thought process. Like, literally, what are you thinking about? Is this a like, you know, do I delegate it or drop it kind of thing? Do you have like a system of how you catalog? what I got to and what I didn't to just figure out how to, how to winnow this down going forward. You know, it's, I'm just not willing to shame myself into action. Like it doesn't work. All of the research says that it doesn't work. Like the only thing that it, like, it's this motivational thing. It just, it, it just doesn't work. And I don't like how I feel when I do it. I don't like how I'm able to do less. Well, I just, Every time I see something that I didn't get done, it's an opportunity of being like, what could I be doing doing differently? So I'll tell you with this integrator, towards the end of last year, I was really struggling with, I was like, I don't have time. And she was just like, okay. And it was so great because she's pushing me on this too. She's like, okay, so what can we get off your plate? Like, what isn't necessary for you to be doing? She's like, I want to hear everything that you're doing in your day. And so she helped me rethink through this of like, okay, so what does it look like what don't I have to do all the time? Like what's, what's not essential for me. It's just, it's this constant evaluation and thinking of like, what is, what is truly the highest and best use of my time? How can I have the biggest impact? You know, I have this 
like my, and people talk about vision statements for, you know, what they're doing and everything. And mine is, I want to change the way people think and talk about money, like period. That's what I want to do. That's what connects all three of the brands that I work with, the two that, you know, I have, and then, and then working with FPA, like that is, that's my why, because I want to change the way people think and talk about money. And if I'm not willing to see those things on my to-do list and be like, okay, so Clearly that's not a priority. Maybe I need to shift my focus. So like right now as a great example, because the FPA externship, y'all, we are like in the thick of this right now, which is, which is really fun and exciting, but like we're having to pause the everyday money brand. Like we had priorities that we were going to be doing on the everyday money that we're just like, you know what, we're just going to pause this and it's okay. Like this is going to be around for later. Like I had a friend not to tell his story, but he was working with a coach and he, you know, had his whole list of things that he, he wanted to do for a year or whatever. And this coach was actually Ed Jacobson looks at it and told him, and he was just like, so most people would want to accomplish this in a career and you're wanting to do it in one, one year. (laughs) And so a lot of what, you know, my perspective is how can I give myself grace knowing that What's that Bill Gates quote? This is another one of the sticky notes that I've had on there on my, my computer screen. Most people can accomplish like more in 10 years than they think they can in a, or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We, we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in 10. Yeah. So what's interesting, because I mean, I always kind of had this mindset, but when I really embraced it, I saw that I was able to get so much more done and, and just live a happier life. <laughs> so somehow they're correlated. When I'm struck, even just down to your, what I thought was surprising comfortableness to say like, yeah, we've been working on this everyday money brand, which I know is, is like your, you know, the, the consumer brand platform that you've My been baby. working on, yeah. on building your baby, <laughs> as you put it. And just like, yeah, I'm just doing this other thing. And I paused that for a while yeah, and then I'll, and I'll come back to it. Like just feel bad to pause? <laughs> Not at all. There's rhythms of life, right? Like there's rhythms. There's this natural flow of how things go. Like it's healthy, right? It's healthy for things to be dormant. Like that is a healthy cycle. You know, we have this mentality that to grow, you have to have this perfect trajectory path, but that's just not the case. So I know we'll get into this everyday money brand and like, and, and kind of what we're wanting to do with it and some of the really cool things we have going on in there. So I was super frustrated like four years ago where I was like, why can't I get this off the ground? This is so frustrating to me. Why can't I just push through and do this? And I, I was at FPA retreat and I went, I think it was Elizabeth Chaton. I was, I was somehow framed that out. And she just looked at me and she was just like, you know, sometimes ideas like just like a seed, sometimes you just have to bury them and they just have to sit there. And like, even though I'm not doing everyday money right now, it's still just sitting here. It's I'm marinating on it. It needs this time. It needs that from me as crazy as it is, but I know the things that I really force and I really push. And I'm just like, here am I, you know, pulling from the book traction, which the integrator comes from, you know, here's my three quarterly rocks. Here's my metrics and da, 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 da. Sometimes like those are all good things. And like, we have all those in, in all three businesses. Like we know our quarterly rocks. We know like all of that, like we have to run a solid business, but it's healthy to pull back. It's healthy for it just to say, it's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. And, but there'll be a time. And I say this and, you know, I was always like, well, see, I'm not as productive, but then I look around and I'm pretty darn productive. Like I get a lot of stuff done. Yeah, you really do. And so, so to me, this is like, this is not like an admission of like, I'm not saying that, 
this is an excuse to not get something done. It's saying that things just have different growth rates. They just have different, I mean, we have a garden outside. I learned so much from watching the garden and, and I, I, so much of my life, I feel like I can see played out in that. If things grow at different times, things bloom at different times, different fruit is going to come from in different ways. And, and it's, it's okay. It's actually really, really healthy. And so once I gave myself that freedom, like happier life, and I actually got a lot more done. So it's a whole different mentality. It's a whole different framework for how to approach your life and how to approach your work. So, so talk to us about how this maps more directly onto the work that you do. So we, we've, we've kind of talked about three different, I guess, uh, buckets or areas that we'll We'll get into there's there's the advisory firm, there's everyday money and what you're doing on the consumer side, and then there's there's FPA stuff and externship and other programs that you do there. So let, let's start on the advisory firm side. Tell us tell us about the the advisory businesses that exist today. Yeah, so as it exists today, we're I would still call us a boutique wealth management firm. So a couple of years ago, I well, long story short, ended up buying two practices at the age of 26. And it was a lot of investment, you know, it was very investment focused. I would say it's financial services. And, you know, they talked about financial planning and then I actually learned what financial planning was. Like I learned it in school and it was always this, there's always this disconnect between what it was. And it was really, this is why I'm so, so passionate about FPA and, and its importance. FPA is really where I learned what financial planning was. And so I started doing financial planning in with my clients. And one of the most powerful things was I had a client who had been with this lady about the practice friend for 25 years, like a long time. And I had my little script and I was so nervous. I asked for $500. It felt like so much money. And I pitched the idea in an invest in, in a meeting where they were coming in to talk about their investments. I pitched this idea of financial planning and, and what it would be. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he was, he's, he doesn't trust people very well, like very much like initially. And he, after going through this whole meeting at the end, and I was like, so what do you think? His response to me was, he was like, this is what I've been looking for, but I never knew what it was called. And I was like, oh my God, like what, like this is it. And so I started- What did you pitch him? (laughs) Right? I don't know. I know, I do know, but- I pitched him, you know, what financial planning is and and the process that it would be and the, what he would be able to get out of it. And I will tell you, he walked into that first meeting with me. He literally like had his papers in his arms, like crossed in his arms. And he was so, God, it impacted him so much to let somebody in like was such a big deal. And by the end of the meeting for him to say that, like it was just one of the most validating things. And now he is one of my like all-time favorite clients. Love him. You know, like it's really, really great, great relationship. But I started realizing like there's a difference between investment management and they were calling it financial planning. We were calling it financial planning and true financial planning. And I started going through and then started hitting all like more of these clients who I thought would be interested in it. And then I started seeing the stark contrast to financial planning and everything else. And it was a night and day difference when I would walk into a financial planning clients meeting. And when I walked into an investment management meeting, you know, and we would do some back of the envelope financial planning, right? Like we would, we would have some of those like, you know, conversation, but it, it, it's just a different ballgame. I always say like, once you've tasted true financial planning, like you can't go back, like, (laughs) 
Well, just like what was the what was the difference in practice for you? Like the mm-hmm. what you were talking about, the depth of conversations, the fact that like you also got to number crunch and financial planning software and analyze further. Like what was the what was the difference for you in practice? Yeah. So in practice, you know, we would do so I'm I'm thinking through like specifically like clients with investment management, you know, we would run, we would analyze their portfolio. We may or may not run like a retirement projection, but we didn't have, those are all good things, but we didn't have the larger conversations. So when I started, so I'm, I'm like 26 and like, it's crazy what I did. I, I I'm running this practice and I was just so afraid. Okay. So I'll, I'll tell you this story because it's fun. So I got married October 27th, 2012, and I bought the business January 1st, 2013. So 10 weeks later. And so basically we had no money. Like my husband had moved from out of town. And so he didn't have a job yet. Like this is just me. We had like not a lot, barely any money in our bank account. I knew the bills were going to be hitting. And I, it was just, it was a very stressful time. And so, you know, I was pacing back and forth in my apartment all the time, but I was so worried about what am I going to be missing? Like, because it matters that we give our clients good advice. Like it matters tremendously. And so I ended up, you know, Deborah Fox of the Fox Financial Planning Network. Absolutely. She had a process package. And so I ended up, you know, it's the only time I've done this in my life. I ended up putting that on a credit card. I was like, I know I can pay this off, you know, soon, but I need to know that if I'm walking into these meetings and I am doing the absolute best that I can be doing. And so then I had immediate checklists and things that I could, I could bring in to give me the confidence that I wasn't missing something because I'm always worried about what am I missing? And so we did that, got those processes. And so, you know, when I'm pitching it, I used, you know, a lot of her materials and like how, like kind of pitching that script to, to these clients. So in practice, what did the financial planning meeting look like? It looked like, you know, having the conversations about learning about them, you know, taking the time to listen. You know, we, yeah, I love the work Brad Klontz does and Ted Klontz and, and all this stuff on the importance of listening. I also had gone to, sorry, the other piece I did, I did the Deborah Fox program. And then I also did the Sudden Money Institute or Financial Transitions Institute that they, that with Susan Bradley now. Because I was like, I need to learn how to be engaging with clients better. And so I learned to be quiet and listen really fast. But the functional, what did it look like differently? One, I took the time to actually understand them at a very deep level, asking them about their goals and priorities, asking them about all of this so that I had that context for when we were having the the meetings with them. Because without that context, it just doesn't, clients don't feel as heard. And then it's just a different ballgame. So talk to us about, this this actual like purchased a firm at age or purchased two practices at oh, yeah. at age 26 so like was this your entree into the business had you been doing it for a few years and then got opportunities like how how exactly does this come about i don't know it feels like a lifetime ago so i was interviewing for a woman i was you know 22 she was i think i can say this 68 at the time And when I did the interview, she was just like, you know, we're looking for a succession plan. Like, are you interested? And so she had tried a handful of other, like there was, you know, lots of backstory on that. And I said, like in the interview, I said, of course, I like literally didn't know what a succession plan was. Like, like literally like knew nothing. All I heard, all I heard was say yes to this question and you will be more likely to get the job. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And so I did that. And then I'm just very curious. I'm a very curious person. And so I started working for her, you know, learning about the business, learning about, you know, 
all of these different things. I remember, gosh, this is why I care so much about FPA. I remember going to my very first next gen gathering and I was like, finally, like finally I can get help because nobody was in that situation. And it was up at St. John's. I think you were there. There's like 25 people there. And I remember going, I know know exactly who I went up to. She was helping facilitate it. I went up to her and I was like, like very first time, like everybody's there, like first time you break out. I was like, I need to talk to somebody about doing a succession plan because I'm in the middle of one. And like, there's just, I don't know who to talk to. And she went around the room and she went, they tried, they tried, they tried, and they tried. I don't see anybody who's doing it. And it was like devastating because I was like, what in the world? Like, what is happening? Anyway, I, at that gathering, you know, I got some of the best advice that I ever got. And somebody, somebody literally, like, I I was very transparent, like everything that was happening because succession stories, like there's a story. There's always a story. And they're all a little, a little bit different, which is really interesting. But somebody told me, she was like, yeah, you need to quit your job. You don't have the experience for this. You don't have, you know, all these different things that were impacting it, that advice. And it was some of the best advice I got. I didn't follow any of it, but it changed my perspective. So I walked into it being like, cause everybody was just like, oh my God, you're so lucky. You are so lucky. You are getting your career handed to you on a silver platter. How fortunate are you? And it, flipped that script for me to saying, yeah, you know what? I am really fortunate, but it is not easy. It is not easy. And I promise you, I am not getting my career handed to me on a silver platter. Like that's, no, that's just not true. Succession plans are a different way in, but I don't think that they're any more or less difficult than starting your own practice. So ironically, you you came out, you still didn't come out saying, oh, well then I guess this succession planning thing isn't going to work because everybody else in the gathering at the time had one that didn't work. You just came out saying, well, I guess it's going to be difficult and then plowed in and bought the firm a few months later. It wasn't a few months. It was like two years later. <laughs> okay. So you really had time to, to opt out, but still. Yeah. But, but the thing is, so here's where I really struggle. And, you know, one of the things I really struggle with, so like, you know, we have this podcast that we've had over 200 episodes. Like we, you know, I've talked to so many young planners and they're so brilliant and young and all these different things, like so wonderful. And oftentimes they're coming to me and they're like, should I start my own practice? And I'm like, I am not willing to give that advice to a single person. I will tell you that owning my practice has been the absolute best thing that I have done, but that's, I cannot tell somebody that they should be doing that. Like, I really struggle with how we give advice in this, in this business, because I can tell you what's worked for me, but at the end of the day, you're the one who's going to know what's going to work for you. So I can hear all of the best advice. But really what it's, it's my responsibility, it's each of ours responsibility to take that advice and really, really understand like, what is the best part of that, that you need to apply to yourself and what, what isn't. And it's that self-discovery. I just don't like, we each have our own pathway in this. We each know what's best for us. And it's more of, I want somebody when they want to start their own business, like there's no way they should be coming and saying, well, Hannah Morris said I should start a business. So therefore I'm going to start a business. Like no, that's not, that's not fair to them. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to their family. It's not fair to their clients. Like they need to know that when they make this decision, that it is their decision, that they're the ones that came up with it. And so I think there's this step between giving advice and the self-reflection that we don't put enough emphasis on the self-reflection piece. So yeah, people love to give advice all the time. Particularly in our industry. Oh my God. Yes. But the thing is, is that one, another one of my favorite quotes, you can all my favorite quotes is advice kills conversation. 
So what we do when we give advice to a young planner is we're killing the conversation. What if instead of giving a piece of advice, we asked a question? What if we did that? Because that now is going to help that young planner start discovering for themselves what they actually want to do. There's so much more. When somebody asks me a question or advice, there's so much more under the surface. And so it's been a really interesting thing to navigate, even as, you know, I mean, I have an audience. I have a platform. What do you, how do you give advice in that when you know that, like, it's not the advice that's important. It's asking the better questions of yourself that's important. So how did this frame up to doing a, I guess, a purchase slash succession plan? Like, how did this work when you decided to pull the trigger in, in January of 2013? So the logistics of it were, because I had no money. I think we we established that. She wanted the freedom to be able to pick who she wanted to run the practice. And so because of that, it was an owner financed. And so it was just a payout, you know, arrangement over five years. So basically like she got a she got a percentage of revenue of the ongoing business for the for the next 5 years and then that was the deal. Yep. And can I ask like what what was the payout split? Like how did you how did you come to a number? Oh, so it was oh man, it feels like a lifetime ago. So we ended up valuing the practice at two times reoccurring revenue and one times non-reoccurring revenue. And then we built in an internal rate of return of like, I think it was 5%. And then we just said, based on the trailing 12 months, we did like percentages over five years. So that was kind of how we came up with that percentage and kind of how we worked around that. Oh, interesting. So so as opposed to just an arbitrary, like it's going to be 20% or 40% of whatever it is you do, you essentially tried to formulate a like a dollar valuation and then said, well, based on what we did over the past five years and the fact that we're, or what we did over the past year and the fact we're going to try to pay it out over five years, here's what we would have to pay as a percentage of last year's revenue to amortize this over a five-year period. Yep. And so, you know, we both had risk in it, right? Like she had the risk of the market falling, but at the same time, like I also had risk of like, what if this blew up. What if I like doubled the practice? Like then I'm paying right. her out more. And so we just found that was like a really good like solution for us. What was really kind of fun about that arrangement is when we were negotiating, we were both looking out for the other person, which was kind of a cool dynamic on that. So how, what was the the size or the revenue base of the of the practice? Like was this enough to be your everything or this was still just a piece and you were and you were still going to have to you know, grow and drive and do more from there to get to where you wanted. Yeah. So it was when I left, the practice wasn't just like a 1% AUM practice at all. So it was like a much more diverse practice on that. And so there were a lot of clients that were just brokerage accounts that we had that weren't like fee-based or were only, you know, we had several million, like several multi-million dollar accounts that like we weren't getting paid fees on. So for a variety of different reasons. And so the AUM number always is more impressive than like what the revenue ended up being on that. So just, just my caveat right, on it. Just the sort of the challenges of traditional brokerage model. Like you end up yeah. with a wide range of clients with a wide range of, of ways they are or are not compensating you depending on how often you're doing business with them. Yep. And so when I left the practice and it had grown over time was between 60 and 70 million. Okay. And so the revenue wasn't, I mean, it was probably and like, and again, there's like the BD cuts and all the other things that go into it. So it wasn't nearly as, as clear, you know, we have the 80, 20 rule. We had the 90, 10 rule in that practice. Okay. So not, not just 80% of the profits come from 10% of the clients, but like 
not 80% of the profits come from 20% of the clients, but like 90% of it came from 10% of the clients. So in my evolution of this, I ended up buying this practice and I ended up realizing the difference between financial planning clients and non-financial planning clients. And so anyway, there was an opportunity that was presented where somebody wanted to buy, you know, basically take over the loan amount of it. And so I was able to take those really those financial planning clients that I had really kind of developed that relationship with. And I started my own RAA. And so that's, so I really went from a working 60 hours a week to, you know, I brought my top, I mean, well, I guess I can say it. I brought my top 18 clients. That's what I did. I brought my top 18 clients, started my RAA. And when, and when was this? This would have been about five years ago. So 2015. Okay. So, so like you were two years into the deal Mm -hmm. having bought and basically said like, yeah, I've got about 18 of these financial planning clients I really like, and the rest are more transactional and more investment oriented, not a good fit. So, so you resold the rest and left with your 18. Essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I brought that over and it was, it was great because can you imagine the difference in the workload? (laughs) Of like, think, I know when people ask me about this, I'm like, okay, imagine if you could just take your best 18 clients, what would your life be like? And they're just like, oh my God, it'd be amazing. I'm like, yeah, I know. (laughs) How many, like roughly at least, how many did you leave behind and not take? Like how, how much of a schism was this? So I had, and again, it was like a traditional brokerage model and she was OSJ. So she got a lot of, I hate calling clients orphaned accounts. It's so, Mm -hmm. I don't like it. So anytime an advisor would leave, she would get like the remainder of those accounts. So there was a lot of rod, but at any point I had between 250 and 300 families. Interesting. So you, I mean, that's just quite a a break, like had almost 300 clients decided to shift to an independent RA, took 18 of them with me that were a good planning fit. Yep. So how much revenue does that walk away from? Like I... I get the 90-10 rule that I'm assuming you were disproportionately holding on to the ones that were that were more profitable, but I have to imagine this was still a step backwards. So the crazy part about it is throwing out the year that I left because that's, you know, a hot mess. My take home stayed the same. Because at the end of the day, like So you had the broker dealer fees, you add how the technology suite that I was using, you add in office rent. So I went from working from home and like just renting an office when I would meet with clients, all of that with everything. And granted, that's not entirely fair because I did like, I was bringing in, you know, I brought in some new clients and I had some, some of those clients had life events that, you know, brought in more assets. So, you know, with all of those things kind of falling in. Yeah. But the flip side was you, you had a little bit more time to focus on growth and moving forward when yeah. you went from 300 clients to 18. So let me tell you what happened. And this was a really pivotal moment in my life. And as you were talking about earlier, like, how did you get this mindset shift? This is this is where. So this happened. And it was intense. And it happened. And it, so, so grateful. But I basically got to the end of it. And I was like, I am exhausted. I am ex- completely and totally exhausted. I'm the type that I was going to school full-time and working full-time. Like that was me, right? And being successful at both. Like that's like that's just who I am. And so I sat there and I started thinking back, when have I ever taken a break? Like when have I ever done that? And I realized that I had never done that in my life. And so going back to when I was like doing a paper route at like 12 years old, you know? And so what I did is I got in here and I was like, oh my God, can it be this good? Can it be possible 
that I can support, you know, what we're doing in our, in bringing in this income with 18 of like my best clients. I get, get their phone call and I'm excited to talk to them and realizing that like, that's like 15 to 20 hours of work a week. Like, and so my immediate inclination was, okay, well now I've done this and now I need to grow my practice. And I stopped myself and I'm so grateful that I did. I ended up saying, okay, Hannah, for six months, you're not marketing. You're not pushing yourself to do more. You're not doing anything. You're just going to be okay and rest. And it was such a powerful thing for me to teaching me the power of, of rest and resetting. And, and it's not just about pushing, 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 pushing. It's, it's that, it's that, that cycle. I, I do have to ask really quick on that. Cause you are like, you are a vision ideas type person. Like I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the wiring because I've got the similar compulsion, you know, going into rest mode, like the brain doesn't turn off for six months. <laughs> What happened with all that idea energy? Because if anything, like you had more time to think of things. So what I did is I I really started doing like self-care type things. I focused a lot of energy on that. I focused, there's a book called The Artist's Way, like, whoa, like you want to change your life? Do that book. And it's about how to, someday I'm going to give this talk. This is the talk that I want to give of how to approach your work as an artist because it's fundamentally different than what we're taught how to do in financial planning. It's fundamentally different. And that's what I felt like that book taught me. It was how to approach my work and my life like an artist. What's the basic gist? Like, how is it, how is it different than what us normal non-artist folk do? Well, everybody's an artist, so we'll start there. But it's really a self-discovery type book. So it's every day you're journaling, you're doing your morning pages. It's helping people break out of their shell and into like their creativity. So like one of the things, well, there's just a lot of really good things. And okay, to be completely honest, I didn't even get through the whole book because it was a big commitment and I'm, I'm an Enneagram seven. People who know what that is, they'll get that. I don't even know how to, it, it, it's just a whole different, it's teaching people to operate from a creativity space. But I ended up doing this and I ended up having just this time to, and part of the creativity process is being able to rest. Right. And I'm, I'm still like, I'm still like, again, if you talk to people in my life, they're like, so when was the last vacation you took? So I realize that I'm still not the best at this, but the resting is, is a critical piece to creativity. Like you can't, like your creativity will be limited if you're not resting. And so I was watching different things. I was watching outside of financial planning. I was watching all these different things and, and seeing all these, all this stuff. And that's what really what creativity is, right? It's connecting dots that other people don't aren't connecting. That's what creativity is. Like, no, we're not really that original. And so I ended up, you know, looking at businesses outside of financial planning. What was I drawn to? Like, what what gave me energy? What gave me life? Like outside of financial planning. Anyway, so I was, I was doing this for about six months, and then one like I shot up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh my god, I have it figured out. I know what I'm going to do. So more of that context. I think a lot of us. So part of going from 250 clients to 18 is I realized the importance of if you go down to 18 clients, they have to be the right 18 clients. And, you know, I have a very clear client persona that we work with. Like I know exactly who my people are. And so, but I was having friends who were just like, Hannah, we love the way you talk about money. We love when you talk about, you know, what you do, how can we work with you? 
And I'm like, so about that, do you have a million dollars? You know? And, and I realized that like, I couldn't work with them. And about the time that I started my practice, I mean, that was like a lot of my friends, like some of my closest you know, professional friends, you know, were the founding members of XYPM. It just, I don't know, it, that's not the right model for me. And I, and I, it just, I love the model. I fully support it, but I don't know. It just didn't fit. If I don't know, I don't know, have a better way of, of saying that. Because you wanted to work with a different type of, of clientele than folks who will or can afford to even pay a monthly fee. Like you wanted to go further down market or not, not as ongoing, just so again, this is where it goes to like, I have definitely like told people to go work with XYPN. So like, there is no like diss on that model at all when I say this, but like for me, I really struggled with the monthly subscription of uh, what's the value that I'm providing to my client and then having to prove that value. And obviously like there's solutions out there for it. And I love that. But like in my gut, I'm like, this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Like, I don't have a better way of saying that of just, but just like, I love it hundred percent support it, but it doesn't fit me okay each their own of whatever model it is so like what was the model saying it sounds like you know i'm doing the aum thing for my 18 clients works great for them but it's very limiting i want to do something that reaches other people so i don't have to tell them about my you know like a million dollar minimum but i don't want to go to monthly subscription fees because that doesn't fit me so so what i ended up creating was a workbook so it was a way to take what I was doing to a DIY so people could go through it themselves. And this is this is the brand, like I told you, like right now, it's just kind of sitting on the sidelines. <laughs> so the workbook is your is your everyday, everyday money. Yep. So it's everyday money. Yep. So that's really where I was like, this is it. And so we started building out, like, you know, I just I just have such a clear vision for what what that's gonna be someday. And, you know, really taking what I'm learning from my clients and applying it to that everyday money space. So I want to understand a little bit more for for everyday money, but bef before we go there, just help me understand the like what does the advisory firm then look like as it exists today? Like if you kept it trim and you're still sitting at only eighteen to twenty clients and just that's your group, are you growing, trying to grow it larger? What is what's the position of the business today? So it is. I think we have like twenty five to thirty clients right now. One of the things I realized that I was tapping out of my capacity because I was doing all this work with FPA, or, you know, doing all this work with FPA, and I just realized like kind of what you're saying, like balls are getting dropped. No, they weren't getting dropped with my clients because that's not acceptable. But I realized like I was turning away new clients. So in a year, I probably turned away 10 new clients. And granted, they not, didn't all necessarily fit my persona or whatever. And so I had, so Charlie, my husband and I had been sitting down one night and we wrote it on a sticky note. I still have it. And we basically said, we want a small firm with big ideas. We want a small firm with big ideas. Yep. Like, what does that mean? Oh, it can mean a lot what of things. What does that mean to you? I mean, my whole thing is like, call me naive, whatever. I don't care. Really, yeah. But like, I want to change the world. Like, I want to change the way that people think and talk about money, period. Like, that's what I want to do. That's it. And And so I want to be the one who can walk into a room and say like, help shift that perspective and be thinking on this, this larger, grander scale. That's why I love FPA and, and the work I'm doing there. And so it can mean a lot of different things, but at the core of it, that's what it means for me. So anyway, what happened was, you know, in talking with different people, I, I couldn't even tell you who, who did this, but they really pushed back on me. They're saying, okay, so small firm with big ideas, 
why does the size of a firm have to do anything to do with big ideas? So you're t- what I hear you say is you don't want to work more than X number of hours in your firm. That's what I'm hearing. But that has nothing to do on the size of your firm. That's only doing on your, your restrictions and going back to that constraint and stuck buyer's creativity. And so I took that to heart and I realized that, you know, we had some, I mean, Charlie and I had some really fundamental like conversations of like, okay, so we've been saying, I just want this boutique practice, but am I willing to grow it to more? Would I be willing to do that? And so I started thinking about what would that look like? What would it look like for me to be the visionary in a firm, the culture keeper? Like that gets me so excited to being the culture keeper of my firm of, you know, how can we, how can we scale this? How can we help more people in this financial advisory, you know, in the financial planning business? And so we ended up hiring a guy full-time last year. He ended up moving down to Dallas for that, which was a big move. We ended up getting office space because we realized that, that we didn't want to limit the size of the firm based on what I could only handle. And so we hired somebody who wants to run a practice. Like, yes, he's a good financial planner. Yes, he's a, he's a very brilliant financial planner. I love the way he thinks about the problems and and how he can think deeper and, and see things that I don't see. Like, I think he really compliments me in a lot of really cool ways from a financial planning perspective, which is obviously like the, you got to pass that hurdle before, you know, you could do this. But he's also really interested in the running the business side of it. And so I was like, okay, so I can hire somebody who's be willing to manage the next hire, who'd be willing to actually maybe be a chief operating officer someday. I don't know if that's the direction that he wants to go. And obviously like these things change and that's totally okay. But that was our intention in hiring him versus a really good financial planner who just wants to do really great work with clients. And and he does want to do that, but he also is interested in these other things. So we were really intentional about that. So that's where the practice is right now. So I guess two questions. One, like, how do you find these mythical mythical unicorns? Oh, like him? Oh, here's the brilliant part about this, right? So like I do all this work with FPA. I've talked to all of these planners all over the country. I have a pretty good sense. Like I could probably point to like who I would want as my next two hires. Actually, I have them in the head right now. I, I see their faces. So number one, he was doing some virtual pair planning work for me. So I had already had some experience working with him. I know what's up with new planners and like I know who who I would go to because I've been having conversations with so many new planners because of what I'm doing with FPA. Okay. Another indirect benefit and reminder of, you know, why to be involved with your professional associations. Like you build your network. I mean, like we kind of talk about it as networking, but it's not just networking in the context of, you know, I'll find a, a accountant or attorney who is also a member who may refer me clients. It's, it's, it's building the network and pipeline of, who you might hire someday, or if you're a younger or newer advisor, like finding your way to people in positions like where you were, who may be hiring, where you it would be nice to be noticed because you've been involved with FPA and that's how they find you. To me, it's one of the pieces that doesn't get talked about enough in benefits of being involved in a in a professional membership association. I mean, I, I look at a lot of the businesses that I've I've built or have been involved with as well, and and almost all of them came from connections that were created through through FPA or some other membership association. Yeah, like it, it matters. I don't think I would have been able to articulate the importance of it when I started my career. But now I look back and I'm just like, oh my God, like the community of financial planners is, and, and you know, and that's really found in FPA. Like that's absolutely critical to my six. I would not be here without that. And so what's the I guess like AUM base or revenue base of of the firm as you built it now. I think we're at like I mean, so right now we're at like twenty two to twenty five million, depending on where the market is at any day. So so kind of this this base of 
roughly 25 clients who have roughly a million dollars each generates a pretty good healthy amount of revenue for not being buried with 300 clients. Yeah. And so so that's the advisory firm and 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 so what's the idea of it going forward from here? Like you've said you sort of shifted of we're going to be a small firm with big ideas. Well, maybe we're not going to be constrained to a small firm. I just want to be able to live my life as the visionary to vision and do the things that I want to do, which means it may get larger. So you've hired and expanded office space. Like, where do you see this going now? Is this like, okay, since we're not constrained to a small firm, like we're on our way to a billion dollars? Are, are you are you thinking of those kinds of paths or? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because one of the things, you know, when we hired Matt, like I want him to have a seat at the table. Like what's been really fun for me Yes, I'm setting the vision for the firm, but it's also like hearing what his vision is too. Like, it's just, it's just really cool to be like, I don't have to do this alone anymore, you know? And obviously he's not partner yet or anything like that, but yeah. So we definitely have like our three and 10 year plan of wanting to grow the business. I mean, our first kind of check mark would be like at a hundred million dollars, I think is what we have for our 10 year goal. Or maybe it's more than that. It might actually be more than that. I think we're at 300,000 or 300 million is a 10 year goal. We'll just start compounding, see what it I know. Up I know. I just figure you put the right inputs in, you're going to be good. That's not true. Okay. So like I say that we do have a very, I, I feel like I need to qualify this. We do have a very clear, we use attraction. We have one year goals. We have you know, three months goals. We're on track. So that's the advisory firm. And it sounds like for you, a piece of building the advisory firm, building team in the advisory firm is because you want to also then get, get to spend more time on everyday money and the material that you're doing or creating on that end for consumers who can't afford to be million dollar clients of the core advisory business. So basically taking the best practices of what I've learned as a financial planner and packaging it up to where everybody else can hear it. You know, so much of what we hear when you go to these conferences and there's these brilliant financial psychologists and these brilliant people talking about all this and they're talking about it, which is great, but how are we getting that message out to the masses? You know, and that's, that's where I want to be. I want to change the way people think and talk about money and on that scale. What does that look like in practice? Like, what are you trying to do or create or deliver at, at everyday money to, to fulfill that mission? Okay. So the first thing is, so we have this workbook that people can, can go through, but that's, can't emphasize this enough. Our clients will be our greatest teachers if we let them. And so in working with clients, like I've learned so much because if they don't get something, that's a point of innovation. If they don't understand, that is an opportunity for us to, to become better as a profession, as, as a professional in our, in our client relationships. So I, I very much take that, like we have a bad meeting with a client. Like that's like, we need to pay attention to those and figure out how can we do it differently? That's a really exciting opportunity. So budgeting. I basically stopped doing it because I didn't know how to do it. And I was doing it with my clients and they were not getting it. And it was wasting a meeting and it was waste. They were frustrated. I was frustrated. And I kind of resigned myself to just saying, you know what? I work with people who kind of have their budget figured out. 
they kind of have it figured out. They know they come, you know, they know how much money they can save every month and they figure that out on their own and I'm going to do everything else. Okay. Well, that's just not good enough. And so I ended up having a prospect. There are two doctor clients making a very healthy income. They came to me and they were like, okay, we need help with our budget. Will you help us? And I was like, well, I don't really know how to do budgets, but it's been bothering me. It's been bothering me that I'm sorry, I don't know how to do budgets with my clients and I'm calling myself a financial planner. Like that's a little bit embarrassing. And so I was just like, you know what? Fine. I'm going to do it. I was like, yes. So I signed them up and I was just like, how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to help them with their budgets? And so, you know, Dr. Ted Klons. Yep. I had a conversation with him several years prior and it still like haunts me what he said, but he said, anything you can tell, you can show. And it was bothering me because I'm like, what does that mean for us as financial planners? I still don't think I've even like touched the surface of what that means from a financial planning standpoint, but it was really bothering me. And so I kept going back to this. I kept going back to this idea of, Whatever we're telling them, anything we can tell, we can show. How does this fit with budgeting? And so I ended up going to a learning store and I bought these blocks. Kids learn fractions on them. I never did, but apparently you can. And so they're they're just blocks. And so it was a multicolored set of blocks. And so I come into this meeting and I was like, okay, we're going to talk about your budget. I've never done this before. You guys are going to be the first people I'm trying with it. So like... Let me let me go ahead and try this. Welcome, new client. Thank Welcome. You my guinea pig. <laughs> Thank you for paying me. So I ended up, what I did is I had their income. And so I assigned a dollar value for each one of their blocks. And I had the, uh, their spending for the last month. So they had given me that information. And so we set out a set of blocks in front of them. And then we went through how they actually spent their money. Don't tell me what you want your budget to be. Let's talk about how you actually spent your money. I had little like index cards and I would write, you know, mortgage, housing, you know, electricity, all those things. And so they took those blocks and they actually moved them on the table, right? You physically show like, okay, we can say you spend a thousand dollars on restaurants and eating out, but like, let's actually put like a thousand dollars worth of little budget blocks and look at how big that stack is in front of the eating out budget. Yes. If you look at like adult learning theory, if you look at financial psychology, this is, they're all pointing to this, but we just don't see it yet. So they, they actually physically were moving this in with all the blocks. So what happened is they started having fun. Like they actually have fun talking about their money. And so they moved all this stuff around their table. And so I still can imagine this. We're in the meeting. Husband and wife are both standing up completely engaged in this, looking at it. So they're, they're both working on moving the, moving the blocks around the table and doing it as a caveat. One of the things I do before every budgeting blocks, which I actually did in the very first one, is I do a values exercise with them. So I say, what is important to you? What are your values in life? Like, what are, what are those? And so they do that. So they ran out of money. And, you know, they spent more than they made. As they're going through these exercises, they, they run out of blocks because they ran out of their monthly income. And they just like looked at me and they're like, well, what are we supposed to do now? And so I gave them red blocks and, and so they filled out the rest of their budget. And so they were able to visually see their budget. Y'all, it is the most powerful thing I have ever done with my clients. So in this specific example, they could immediately see where they were overspending. So they're looking at this moving things around and looking at it. And, and like, again, I'm telling you, they're completely standing up, engaged, fully engaged, like moving things around. The wife looks at this. 
They had their mortgage and their housing because I always go with how they categorize it because I want it to be how they think. She grabs their mortgage, sets it to their other debt, looks and says, oh my God, is that how much money we're spending every month on debt payments? Hmm. I was like, yeah, that is. And she just goes, oh my God, we have to stop that. And they did it. Because here's the key. When you start looking at adult learning theory, they discovered it. They don't need it. They don't need me to tell it. They can start making the connections with this budgeting. I literally did this exercise virtually because we're still in COVID with a client this morning. And so like we mailed them a set of the blocks. And so we were like, I was just saying, like, how do you, the, when the whole point is like, you get the blocks and you move the blocks and like, how do you do that virtually? Yeah. Well, the whole thing is like we have, so we have a product called the budgeting blocks. So this can be a product that you can literally just send to your clients and they can do it on their own. So like there's a workbook and there's step-by-step and there's instructional videos and things like that. So clients can do it on their own if you want to do, do it that way. But even this morning, so I'm talking to the wife and, you know, the husband, like Matt was in the, in the room with me and he was just like, did you see that? He was like, you were talking to the, to the wife and the husband is, he's like, his eyes lit up and it connected and he just started moving everything around on the table and they're able to actually engage in their money in a way that we don't allow them to do. Nobody, very few people actually think in terms of spreadsheets. It doesn't mean anything when you say you're, you're $436 over your budget. It means something. Now we have another green and gold blocks. You want to feel really bad about it, or was that the problem? Like you feel too bad about your deficit? Well, we don't want to shame. We don't want to shame them, right? So like I've had clients who are overspending on a monthly basis and that's okay, right? Like that's that's okay because it makes, it fits their situation because they're in a unique time in their life. And I don't want them to be like, that is bad because it may not be. Maybe that's an intentional decision that they're making and that we need to be supporting as financial planners. But yeah, this client today, he was fully engaged, moving, both of them were. It is just so incredibly powerful. So once you get the budget, like where they actually spent their money, then we have questions to reflect back on their values. So we ask them questions like, how does your spending reflect your values? And they're able to talk through it. They're able to get that other perspective, right? Because if we were just going to do this budgeting exercise, like, yes, it's very powerful. But if you add that values in it as well, you are going next level with your clients. I have not been able to have I have such deeper conversations with my clients about their budgeting now than I ever did with their money anywhere in the past because we can talk about it differently. It's a whole different a different dimension to this. So I had another client. She was a recent widow and she was completely overwhelmed. And she was just like, I can't like, you know, so I, I doing a lot of the sudden money type techniques with her. Anyway, so I am over at her house and we're walking through a budget on this and she is just like, we ended up going through a budget. So we had where money was spent. And so we went through and we put all the money out. And so we didn't have like the red blocks because, you know, she has her social security income that she was getting because she, she has two young children and then she was pulling from the life insurance money. Right. And she's just frankly trying to survive, right. Everything that had just happened because it was very sudden. And so we put the blocks out. And, you know, we had all of her expenses. She pulled up her bank account and we make sure everything was categorized on her bank account. And we went through like, that's, that's the level of planning we did with this. So it was all enclosed in that meeting. And so we mapped out, you know, the top row was how much money she was, you know, pulling from her social security and the bottom row was the life insurance money. And so what we did, sudden money talks about the importance of a thinking partner. I became her thinking partner very literally on this. We ended up going and having, we would look at the blocks And so we would talk about each category and where the money was being spent. And so we get to the eating out and entertainment. 
And we start having this conversation about how this, I mean, it was like her, one of her largest expenses, well, health insurance was, but this was up there. And she was looking at this and she was just like, we started talking through like, what are you eating at? What does this look like for you? Like having those deeper conversations. And it became apparent that she's like, I have no energy. I just am barely surviving. And it is so much easier to just load my kids up and go get Chick-fil-A than have to cook anything. And I was like, okay, so, but what's really going on there is I'm hearing, you don't have the energy to make a big meal, but you are going and getting food. So maybe we just need to come up with some, a better solution for you. So what we did in that meeting is we paused the conversation. We made a meal plan for her. We made a meal plan for every night of the week of what her meals were going to be. So we said that the constraint on this, it has to be done in less than 15 minutes. It has to be simple and like, that's it. And so what we did is we mapped it out. We mapped out breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Actually, I think we just primarily did dinner, but we mapped all this. We mapped each one of these things out. And then what we did is we had her, her homework after that meeting was to go to like the Walmart pickup or like the click list thing to have just a saved click list that she would order every week. She would pick her kids up from school on Monday. She would pull into the Walmart thing. They would put their groceries in the back. She would come up, she'd unload her groceries and they had a meal for every night that week. So she saved between 750 and a thousand dollars a month because we were able to actually dive into her budget in a way that I've never been able to do with our clients in the past. And it was so great. So this was a couple of years ago and we were talking recently and she was just like, oh my God, Hannah, she's like, so we're not doing that, that Walmart click list thing anymore. And she's in a very different position. You know, lots of great things have happened to her in life since then. But she was like, my kids hated it. Like they were so sick of it. They were like, mom, do we have to eat spaghetti again? <laughs> it's on the list. That's what we click on Tuesdays. Yeah. But like, that's the power of these blocks is because I would never have been able to have that conversation with her if we weren't at that level. Like looking at a spreadsheet just isn't the same. And, and, and I don't know a better way of doing it, but clients really discover it for themselves. And so this is becoming not just a tool you're using in your practice. Your vision is like, this is a thing that you offer through the everyday money platform that you know consumers can come and buy if they're trying to figure out their their budget issues. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, I use it in my practice. I mean, I've used it with retirees, I've used it with couples getting married, I've used it pretty much everywhere in in between that. And so, I it's a great planning a tool for me as a planner. I've started having planners who are just sending them to their clients, who are just buying them and sending them to their clients so that they can do their budget. You know, a number of planners have started ordering them for themselves. But I mean, the reality is like you can go to a learning store and buy in there too. But I know the pricing on it and like ours look nice and whatever. It doesn't matter. But yeah, it's it's a really and we have training on how to do that on our website. So we actually walk you through as a planner and it's free training. So you can just go watch it and do whatever you want. Because this is my goal. My goal is to change the way people think and talk about money. And this is a tool in order to do that. So planners don't pay anything extra. They just, you just buy the product and it's like 50 bucks. So it's not that much. How much is it? I'm sorry. $49 right now. And that includes shipping. <laughs> so for, for folks that are interested, we'll, we'll have a link out to this in the show notes. So again, this is episode 183. So go to kitsis.com slash 183 and we'll have a link out for budgeting blocks for financial planners to use with their, with their clients. If you, if you want to try this out yourself for, for the work you're doing with clients. It's, it's really powerful. Like, is this the thing for everyday money? Is this just like a thing in, in that you're going to be doing in everyday money and you want to have like 
other tools around this in the future? Like, where does this, where does this go for you? That's what's so fun is that I don't know, right? Like I'm so used like, okay, so like, I mean, I've done like over 200 podcast episodes, which is really great. And I'm like, I know this financial planner space and I love this financial planner space. And I have a pretty good sense. Like, I mean, probably like you do of just like, okay, like I know, like I know what's needed to grow this firm. Like I know some of those things, but like, I don't know. And like, that's so exciting for me because that's such an opportunity to be creative and really just play. Like I just get to play in this space. And it, and that just, I don't know. I hope there's more products. I don't know what they are yet. I don't know. So as, as you talk about or going back to the beginning, like there's stuff you do in your firm. There's stuff you're doing with everyday money, like building the budging blocks. There's things that you're working on with FPA, like the externship program. So like, how do you think about or look at your I guess like your time, the balance of the time, like it, I, you, I can, I can feel the passion that you have for all three of these things. You seem to be pretty amazing at figuring out how to do all of them at the same time and getting the team around you to make that happen. But like, how are you thinking about this going forward of just how you manage all these different things at once? You know, it's interesting. My mind goes in a handful of different directions on how to answer that question. Um, I know I talked about seasons and I really, really believe that I'm not going to be at FPA forever. Like I'm helping them build out their new planner initiatives. Like I'm getting older, like, and, and like, that's a good thing, right? Like that's a really, really good thing, you know, with guiding wealth, like my role hopefully changes. You know, it's definitely like so many of my other peers, like, like want to still be involved in the client meetings and will still be involved in the client meetings, but my role is changing, you know, so there's, there's some, definitely some evolution of like what that looks like and different things require different like energy at different times. So like you mentioned the externship program right now, like this is May 21st. So June 1st, we're going to have over 850 students signing up to go through a learning opportunity, an externship opportunity that deserves my attention right now. And so there's this level of, I don't know, there's, it's this balance, but then there's times when you're just like, it's not a balance. It's, it's, you know, we're going to go all in on this or not all in, but you know, we're going to really focus our attention on this because it matters. And that's, that's what deserves my attention right now. So it's always this like self-reflecting, like knowing, you know, when's the right time to do what, and just knowing that, like, I don't know, I'm just one person. Like I, I just don't get caught up in that. I don't know. It just, it just works out. So what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? How much I enjoyed the business owner side of it. How much you enjoy the business owner side? Yeah. Oh God, I love it. Not so much like the managing people, but the thinking of ideas, the visionary, like being the entrepreneur, like that makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing that surprised me is how clients are, I always say this, the amount of money you have is just packaging. So like one of my taglines in with everyday money is it doesn't matter if you have $10,000 or $10 million, you know, it, you can still live wealthy, right? You can live wealthy now. And so I think one thing that surprised me that I didn't expect going into this is that, you know, clients have as much as we're different and like the different complexities at the end of the day, people in my life who don't have a lot of money, a lot of their core issues and concerns are the same as my people who do have a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's just different packaging on it. And, and once I realized that, like all the intimidation of how much money they went just went out the door. It was just like, no, they're people see them for people. I am struck though, that like you just sort of 
said it almost as an aside, like I enjoy the business owner side of it, not the managing people, but being the entrepreneur and the visionary. Most people don't think of those as separate. <laughs> oh, like most gosh. people think of it as like, well, you if you do one, you got to do both of those. And that's hard because if I don't like both of those, then I, I kind of get stuck on it. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's I've been in this other mastermind group and they just see the world differently. I don't know of a better way of saying it. They just see the world differently. Because they just see those things as separate and you get a choice as to which ones you do or not. Oh, I get a choice because I'm the owner of the firm and I get to decide what I want to do. <laughs> but we all get choices, right? Like Matt is choosing to work with me. At any point, he has a choice not to do that. And so I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know that I'm answering your question. I don't, I like the business owner side. I love seeing the opportunity. I mean, I'm probably like you. I see, I mean, I could probably come up with 20 different business ideas in a day if I was like trying to do that. So I love the idea of how do we innovate? How do we how do we do this better? How can we adapt our process? How do we build the company culture? I love the like, looking at the numbers of the business, thinking about like what are the ratios? How does that work? Things like that. How does everyday money versus guiding wealth? How are they fundamentally different businesses? What's their strategy going to have to be because they're fundamentally different? That type of stuff is really interesting to me. So what does a typical week look like for you at this point? Well, we're in the middle of the externship. And so my typical week right now is building content for that. So my typical weeks are, but for outside of that, Mondays, we, you know, we have our team meetings. We have our, so with the integrators, she wasn't, whatever. Mondays, we te technically have our team meetings. I have an hour and a half call with a copywriter to do final approvals on all of the content that we're building out for everything to help build the, co the content. So Mondays are full with that. So I don't meet clients that day. Tuesdays and Thursdays, we block off for client meetings. So I try to make sure that we have some guiding wealth time in there. Wednesdays, obviously FPA fits in there as well. Wednesdays are really heavy FPA days for me and building out all the different things there. And then Fridays tend to be what needs to be done type of a day. So Fridays are just kind of a catch up day. Yeah. It's like we do most of our podcast recordings on Friday, things like that. Okay. I'm struck by that as well. So like client meetings essentially get concentrated in two days a week because mm -hmm. you've got a very manageable number of clients to be able to schedule them on two days a week. Yeah. So what was the, what was the low point for you on this career journey? You know, I think, especially in my early years, how lonely it was. I don't think we talk about that enough. I think that's a very, again, why I care so much about the FPA yeah, it, it was lonely. It was hard. Nobody understood. I mean, especially in the situation that I was in, there weren't any, I mean, there weren't 26 year olds buying practices and having people to relate to in that sense, that, that was really hard and, you know, and making those decisions and, and just the pressure of all of that, that was pretty, pretty challenging. And again, that was, I guess, part of what pulled you into FPA's next gen and next gen gathering in particular was finding a community of other advisors that actually are going through some similar stuff that you can connect with and commiserate with. Yep. So it was that. And so in my local chapter, they also had, um, they started a seminar series in the FPA DFW chapter. Patrick Darty and Trudy Turner did it. And it was called, it was a seminar, seminar series called You're a Financial Planner, Now What? And I always say that's one of the places where I learned what financial planning was. It felt like a lifeline. That's, that is the word that I use on it. And I think it's the most appropriate one. 
because I had this dream of what financial planning could be, but I wasn't seeing it played out that way, but they gave me hope that it was possible. And so that's really where I could go and ask all my questions and, and get that engagement. And it was so wonderful. And I would come home and tell my husband about this. And there just, you know, there wasn't a high attendance. I'm like, this is some of the best content that I've heard. Like what in the world? And my husband's background is film and digital media. And so he was working at a TV station at the time. And he's like, well, why don't you just put it on the internet? I was like, I have no idea how to do that. I still don't. I mean, I've heard of the internet. Like, I know. I know. I'm like. Put things on it that other people can find. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was like, no, you can, you can put it on the internet. And so they ended up retiring. And this was right after I, it was, you know, I talked about that six months of like rest after I left the broker dealer and started my RIA. Yeah. So they re, quote retired from it. And so I took it over with another lady here in Dallas and she was helping me with the in-person and she was, she was great. Lynn McIntyre from Cadent. And so anyway, we just started putting it on the internet and doing a podcast. And I was, and I suddenly realized, Hey, I can call people up and they'll like talk to me for an hour. Okay. And so we got that started and went down that path and yeah, the rest is history. Very cool. And th and that's now 200 episodes into, so now you're, you're a fire fire. Now what? Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's pretty fun. I've learned a lot on that side of it. So as you look back over the past like 10 years or so of this journey, Anything you wish you you had done differently, like anything you you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from seven or eight years ago? No, I mean like this was this was my path, right? Like I don't think I would change anything. It certainly wasn't easy at all. The advice I always give to young planners is always to stay curious. There's always something more to know. There's always something more to learn about. There's always that person that you're talking to that you're just like, they're so boring. No, they're not. You just haven't asked enough questions. There is something you can learn from them. So stay curious. And, and, and like, that's, that's the advice that I would have given myself. So any other advice to younger, newer advisors looking to come in to the profession today and, and build on a good, good positive step? Yeah. So one of the things, Carolyn McClanahan was talking about this with elder care or elder abuse, how the number one like consistent factor in elder abuse is isolation. And I see that in spades with younger planners. I mean, I talk to them all the time where they're working at, you know, some big name shop or broker dealer or something, and they have no idea there's a world outside of there. And, and so like that's isolation, right? Like they don't know what else is out there. So I would say, you know, break yourself out of that isolation. And I know I keep talking about like the FPA and like why it's important, but like, that's one of the great things about it is that you get to see some, you could, you don't just get to see it. Like you could actually have conversations. You could have community with people who, who are different than you, who are in different models, who are serving different people. And that is going to only help you in your career. So what comes next for you? A lot more fun. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. You know, the big decision point for me is, you know, what do I want my relationship with FPA to look like? And so that'll probably be the driver. But, you know, in five years, I want to be looking at, you know, everyday money. Like I want to be the Brene Brown of personal finance. That's who I want to be. And so in five years, I think you'll, five or 10 years, I think you'll see me much more in that space of, of not so much planner facing, but, but consumer facing and really, really championing this message that, you know, that you can live wealthy now.
like no matter how much money you have. I love it. Live, live wealthy now, no matter how much money you have. Yep. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is even just the word success means different things to different people. So, you know, you're, you're firing on all cylinders with the advisory firm in a great place. Uh, everyday money is, is growing. You've got, you know, cool programs like the externship going with FPA, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Living a joy-filled life. Like, am I truly doing work that gives me life and brings energy to me? You know, if I'm really going to be consistent, the amount of money that I make, I mean, like, I'm just not worried about that. It's, am I doing work that I come home, I'm so excited to go do the work in the morning. You know, am I really living a joyful life and a joyful work life? To me, that's, that's really, really important. That's what success looks like for me. Well, I, I love it. And just the, the way you've honed and refined to that. And, and as we talked about, even from the start, just the, the philosophy of, oh, well, if something didn't get done on my to-do list, I guess I'm just going to have to change what I'd put on my to-do list from now on. Or change what my priorities are. Yeah. Not going to shame myself. <laughs> well, I love it. I love it. Well, well, thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.